Hey, church. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. Please open up your Bibles and meet me in Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. That will be our primary text today. Full disclosure, I am recording this in my office at home. Uh, we had some technical, technical difficulties, rather, back when uh, we originally uh, preached from this text. And we felt like it was an important enough lesson for our church family that we're going back and re-recording it to make sure that we've got it. So our text will be Romans chapter 12, verse 13. And when my family and I were coming home from our holiday travels, my wife, Laura, and I were listening to a podcast, you know, like Good Millennials. Uh, it was an interview with Christian psychologist Diane Langberg. She was talking about spiritual abuse. She defined spiritual abuse as a breaking of the third commandment. The third commandment prohibits taking the Lord's name in vain. Now, usually that phrase is taken to mean refraining from shouting out, you know, God's name when we stub our toe or something like that. But Langberg said that the third commandment is much more about using God's name to accomplish something contrary to God's will. Using God's name to accomplish something contrary to God's will. It's baptizing our own desires in spiritual language. That's what she calls spiritual abuse. And as I reflected on our passage this week, that's what I realized church leaders in particular have done with respect to money far too often. You see how, or rather, you see, as we look through the course of history, of church history, we observe countless examples of spiritual manipulation and coercion with respect to money. We've used spiritual language to hoard resources and build kingdoms uh, unto human hubris and pride. We call it vision. We call it missions. But it's ultimately abuse. We're using God's name to accomplish human purposes. Explicit abuses include that of the Catholic Church's practice of indulgences, teaching members that they could pay for their dead relatives' sins especially those in purgatory, by giving money to the church. And that is until the Council of Trent in 1562. You see, in the early days of the United States, many church leaders justified slavery on the grounds of funding church ministry. These are all explicit examples. But more subtle and modern sins are those of leadership teams convincing congregants that God's vision for their church necessarily includes a bigger building, bigger budgets. They just need more money to accomplish all of this. Not to mention the countless micro-misrepresentation of God's name when we talk about how God is more pleased with us when we give a certain percentage of our paycheck every month. No doubt, there are beautiful stories of Christians living generously and resisting the urge of spiritual manipulation through money. I think of Teresa of Calcutta, Dorothy Day, and the first century Macedonian church. However, much of our history and contemporary habits with money reveal generations of sinful behavior and abuse. We say, Father, forgive us. These are the wounds and the sins we carry into this conversation. This is why it's so hard to talk about money. Some of you give regularly with joy. 
Some of you perhaps have never thought about giving the church money, not even this church, our church. Some of us have been directly and deeply hurt by these spiritual abuses and misrepresentations of God and his will. Others have vague impulses to give to help people, but it may be void of any spiritual understanding. Others still may reserve generosity to specific needs of the poor and organizations outside of the church community. See, we all come to this differently, but as always, we come to this text and teaching together. I think that's how Paul's words find us today. And because we carry a great deal of pain and disinformation about what the Bible teaches about money, I want to say a couple of things from the outset. Uh, we were not and did not take a special offering that day or this day, and you will not be asked to make commitments and sign a letter of intent financially, and there's no specific debt we're about to like try to cover in the near future, at least not that we're aware of at this point. Uh, of course, like any organization, we have needs. We have rent. We have financial projections and aspirations. We have staff that gets paid through the generosity of our church. We have um, different bills that are due and obligations we have to our neighbors to bless and take care of. However, my firm belief is that God desires to shape our character through his word today, not squeeze a few more dollars out of your pockets. God desires to shape you, not get your money. He's after your heart. Look at me, uh, with me rather, to Romans chapter 12, verse 13. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul's instruction, though multifaceted, is really about living generously. And here's then how we'll organize our time today. Generosity meets needs. Generosity is not natural. And generosity reveals our God. So we'll look at how generosity meets needs, why it's not natural, and how it reveals our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my desire is to be clear and responsible with your word. And my desire, along with my brothers and sisters, is to grow in generosity like Jesus and to emulate and respond to his example of sacrificial love as expressed through his generous life, but also as we have uh, the gift of stewardship, of stewarding resources you've entrusted to us. We want to do that wisely. We want to do that sacrificially, and we want to do it humbly. And so I pray for myself and for my friends. Would you shape us to that end for your glory today? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul has two groups of people in mind when he's writing verse 13 here in Romans chapter 12. He's talking about saints and strangers. Saints are the people of God. Theologically, they are all Christians, past, present, and future. However, Paul likely has in mind the Romans fellowship, their local fellowship in particular, within their immediate community in the Roman congregation. So when he says contribute to the needs of the saints— he is thinking about the people with whom they are in immediate community. Strangers are everyone else. See, hospitality is the act of welcoming the stranger. And so when Paul says seeks to show hospitality, he is articulating a robust quality or characteristic of the local church. We're supposed to be generous to strangers. We're called to be generous to God's people, yes, but also to our neighbors, those whom we have yet to meet or those with whom we are less familiar. It's this gospel posture, which is wide awake to the needs of everyone around us, inside and outside of the church. However, Paul uses different language to describe this dual calling 
which helps us to see the specific ways we're supposed to be generous to each other and those around us. First, Paul talks about being generous to the church. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. That word contribute is a translation of the Greek word koinonio, which means to share. It means to share in needs and in suffering. It's sharing life. This idea leaps off the page when Luke writes in Acts. He said the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All who believed were together and had all things in common. See, both fellowship and all things in common in Acts chapter 2 come from the same root word as contribute in Romans chapter 12. That helps us understand that Paul is not talking about a behavior. He's talking about an identity. It's a quality, a character of generosity. He's not talking about tithing a percentage of your paycheck. He's talking about giving your life to people. He's talking about being so close in relationship with people, physically, spiritually, and otherwise, that we know what our brothers and sisters need, perhaps long before they do. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones explains that this means you do not merely distribute to the necessities of the saints, but that you enter into fellowship with them. You become partners with them. You share with them. All this to say, financial contributions and meeting basic and spiritual needs of the church family is an overflow of a deep and abiding relationship as the family of God. See, the Bible never answers our specific questions about how much we should give, but it's clear we should share with the saints saints in planned and spontaneous ways. The Corinthian church wrote Paul specifically asking about this, and his response in 1 Corinthians 16 is now concerning the collection of the saints. In other words, that thing you wrote me about, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Many of us gravitate to this idea of the tithe, or 10%. And that may be a good starting place for many people, but for many of us, that might be a crippling amount. For others, still, that might feel like nothing. In any case, the modern concept of tithing, of the tithe, is not explicit in Scripture. In fact, if we survey ancient people, we will understand that they gave about 23% of their income, not 10. See, there are three types of tithes in the Mosaic law. One for the work of the priest, one for the festivals, and one for the poor. Paul seems most concerned here in Corinth and also in Galatia with a more personal and nuanced approach. In 1 Corinthians, he says, as he may prosper, or another translation, in keeping with your income. The only other place a tithe is addressed in the New Testament is when Jesus is critiquing the hearts of the religious leaders. Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What's Jesus' point? Their behaviors changed, but their hearts did not. They were hypocrites. They did not love the saints and strangers. That's why after prioritizing the needs of the saints, Paul goes on to say that we're supposed to be generous to strangers as well. 
Look at it with me. Romans chapter 12, the latter half of verse 13. And seek to show hospitality. At the most basic level, hospitality is about welcoming people into our life and practically speaking into your home. We're supposed to see this as a deeply spiritual practice. The home is a sacred place. The writer of Hebrews encourages his readers, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. In Romans, Hebrews, and elsewhere, hospitality is a translation of the Greek word philozenia, which means love of the stranger. And a primary way we love strangers is by welcoming them into our lives, into our homes, into our spaces. In her book, All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes, Maya Angelou wrote, The ache for home lives in all of us. The safe place where we can go as we are, as we are and not be questioned. Biblically, the stranger is not only someone who is unfamiliar or an unknown to us, but who usually is without a home a community, a place to be loved and seen and enjoyed. And so showing hospitality is about being generous with our money, our food, our beds, our space, our relationships with those who are without. You see, generosity meets the needs of saints and strangers. It's about seeing ourselves as a part of a family. It's about seeing other persons outside of the immediate community in which we belong. When we keep this context um, of Paul's list of his commands and we realize that none of this comes natural to us. Remember, this is flowing within a larger thought of many different things that Paul is commanding of his readers. Specifically, this type of generosity is not natural to us. So because of sin, if we practice generosity at all, it's often tainted by self-centered motivations. Remember, Paul has just made a big shift. In the first 11 chapters, he focused on the doctrines of grace and sharpening his reader's thinking. And then in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He moves from our thinking to our living And how we live is a direct result of the truth of what the Heavenly Father has done in and through His Son. That is, by the mercies of God, because of His mercy, or in our consideration today, because of His generosity. You see, it's only through the generosity of God that we are able to be generous to the saints and strangers among us. After all, you were not born a saint, and neither was I. We were all born strangers to God and to each other. We were, we were not born into his family. We were adopted into the family of God through the work of the eternal son, Jesus Christ. So we were strangers in the world without a spiritual inheritance. And Jesus, our cosmic neighbor, welcomed us by the mercy and generosity of God. We are the strangers whom Jesus welcomed. We were the non-members whom Jesus made his family. That's the generosity which is not natural to us. Jesus did not send us a percentage of himself, nor did he remain far off and send aid vicariously through somebody else. He drew near himself in the flesh, real space, real time. He came. He gave his life. He shared everything he had with us. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, we are able to share with the saints and welcome the strangers just as God has shared and welcomed us. 
See, the gospel transforms us to do supernaturally what we are unable to do naturally. That is to be generous. Giving things away is not natural to us. And such generosity remains a challenge in a world built on different powers and principles than those laid out in the scriptures. You see, we live in a time when we're daily being told that acquiring and consuming will make us secure and happy. In other words, we don't live with open hands with what we own, but with tight fists. We live in fear. We acquire as much money as possible as we possibly can, and we call it wisdom. We chase after as many thrills as we can and call it self-care. We consume clothes and food and coffee and alcohol and call it the good life. Being generous may still be a cultural value, but that value has limits. See, worldly generosity limits our sharing and welcoming to our comfort. We're taught to give out of our excess rather than out of love. We're taught to treat strangers well out of courtesy, but not to the point of cost. Generosity without discomfort, cost, or suffering is natural to us. But the gospel compels us to a supernatural generosity, which is after the heart, which offers our lives as a sacrifice, which reflects the generosity of Christ. Are you with me? See, Jesus calls our money and our possessions mammon in the Sermon on the Mount. And he famously warns his listeners that you can't serve both. You can't serve God and mammon and stuff at the same time. You have to choose Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, Jesus says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Here it is. You cannot serve God in money. Now, my sisters, my brothers, it is not a sin to have money. It's not even a sin to have a ton of money. It's not a sin to enjoy the things that money affords. What Jesus is saying, though, is that it is a sin to be a slave to money. It's a sin to look to mammon, your money and your possessions, to bring you hope and peace. You see, ultimately, that's what's underneath a worldly sense of generosity. It's an attempt to serve and trust mammon while still do something, doing something nice for others. But Jesus says that's impossible. See, while religion or morality and social values may change our behavior with mammon, we might do different things with our money and stuff, only Jesus reshapes our relationship with our money and our possessions. In other words, only Jesus breaks us free from our bondage to these things. Only Jesus transforms the way we view and relate to what we own, specifically I see a few ways that the gospel rearranges our relationship with mammon, empowering us to live with supernatural generosity. First, the gospel teaches us that God owns everything. See, there's a misnomer about tithing. Many believe and even teach that if and when we give 10%, then the other 90 is for you to do with as you please. Professor Craig Blomberg calls this the mind mentality. The scriptures teach us something else entirely, though. They teach us that everything we have belongs to the Lord. 
The beginning of Genesis teaches us that we're supposed to be stewards of the entirety of creation. We have what the writer calls dominion over God's creation. But our stewardship and dominion are not a change of ownership. Are you with me? Stewardship and dominion are not a change of ownership. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. See, everything in this world belongs to God. Everything in your bank account belongs to God. Everything in your home belongs to God. Everything in your storage unit belongs to God. Everything that you still keep at your parents' house belongs to God. And God does not want you to tip him from your possessions. He calls us to offer our whole selves, everything we have and all that we are, as living sacrifices and serve him, not mammon. This is not natural, but the gospel empowers you to give and live supernaturally. Second, the gospel teaches us that we're always in need. Usually we think the more we have, the less need we have. To be sure, there's a degree of truth to this. Money can alleviate many forms of suffering and challenges we might otherwise face. But when we know the gospel, when we know the truth of our sin and the beauty of the cross, mammon never makes you feel safe because your real need, church, is never merely physical or financial. That means that no matter how much we have, we always have great need. So the, the effect on this at the level of the heart is that it should always keep you humble. We're, we're never getting haughty towards others who have different needs or different possessions than us. It's like when Jesus spoke to the rich young man. The man had followed all the religious laws his whole life, but lacked something. Jesus said in Matthew 19, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. For those who know the story, you know the man was saddened by this teaching because, Matthew tells us, he had great possessions. You see, his moral belief, his moral beliefs changed his behaviors with money, but it did not and could not change his relationship with money. He was too dependent on his stuff. He served his stuff. He trusted his money and loved his money. We're always in need. We're always weak. We are always dependent. And this is not natural to us to admit this, to concede this reality. But the gospel empowers us to give and live supernaturally. So the gospel teaches us that God owns everything. The gospel teaches us that we're always in need. Third, the gospel teaches us that what we own can't fix us. What we own can't fix us. See, money and possessions never meet our ultimate need. In fact, more times than not, mammon only exposes our need further. That's what James warned his readers. Meet me in James chapter 5. Rich landowners had withheld wages from their workers in order to garner more safety and security for themselves. But James says in a warning to them in James 5 verse 1 through 6, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat your flesh and they will eat will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers 
who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who did not resist you. Mammon does not silence fear. It causes more anxiety. These rich landowners thought that they had power because of their money. But James is saying their relationship with money exposed them. It caused anxiety. See, mammon does not make you safe. It regularly reveals our spiritual vulnerabilities. Mammon does not make you happy. It often reveals our need for real joy. This is not natural to us, but the gospel empowers you to give and live supernaturally. Generosity meets the needs of the saints and strangers, but generosity is not natural to us. We may learn new habits in particular from particular religion or social views, value system, but only Christ transforms us. Through Christ, we are freed from the shackles of mammon. We're made worshipers who serve God because he uh, laid our shame open and bare on the cross. He, he put to death what is killing us. And that's how we, who are strangers, have been made into saints. Now, can you even imagine... Can you even imagine what this might look like if your resources were not seen as your resources? If we knew our need and our weakness, if we looked to God, not money for healing and safety, if we served God and not mammon, in short, I think we'd live generously. We'd work to know and meet the needs of the saints and strangers among us. In doing so, we'd be telling the truth to the world about who God is, because that's how he loved us. That's how he demonstrated generosity to us, that he takes care of his family, that he loves outsiders, that he transforms hearts. You see, our generosity reveals our God. Any relationship with mammon, which does not tell the truth about the God of the Bible, is a breaking of the third commandment. We bear false witness. We, we, we call ourselves the church, but don't share with the saints out of love and welcome the strangers as we've been welcomed. We take the Lord's name in vain. It's calling ourselves the people of God without living and loving like God has loved us. In some sinful ways, I wish I could prescribe to you a percentage that (laughs) you could give the church and to your neighbors, because that seems clean, that seems neat and nice and tidy. But God seems constantly less concerned with changing and dictating your habits and much more interested in changing you and changing me. And yet, one of the evidences that he is changing us, that he is changing your heart and mine, of course, is that our habits and behaviors change. You see, we don't change our habits so that our heart will change. Our heart has been changed. Therefore, we live with new habits. You should give to the church. 
but not through an arbitrary percentage, not because we have a greater compelling vision, but rather because we're called to be a kind of people who share needs and resources. For some of you, that's a particular percentage. For others, it's less. For others, still, it's more. You should seek out to meet the needs of your neighbors, but you can't meet all of those needs. And not because you're better than them or any worse off, but because that's who you are. That's how God has served you. So, does money have your heart? Or does God? Do you serve mammon? Or do you serve the Lord? Are you loving your neighbors, the stranger? Do you love your brothers and sisters, the saints? Are you sharing with the saints? Are you welcoming the stranger? Because that's what God has done for you. That's who God is.